This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Jack of all trades, master of none is a common phrase used to describe a generalist rather than an expert in one area. The traditional path to success has emphasized excelling in a field. But a new book looks at why the jack-of-all-trades may be the better way to go today. The book is Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. In it, investigative journalist David Epstein focuses on how spreading one's interest, changing course along the way, and experimenting are important components to finding success. It also touches on one of the great debates in society today with parents and kids. As we push our children to succeed, shouldn't we also let them have some fun along the way? It's a pleasure to have David Epstein with us right now. David, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, You start out this book comparing and contrasting two of the great athletes uh, of the last 30 or 40 years, Tiger Woods and Roger Federer, and, and look at them from the perspective of how they reach their success. Can you take us uh, into that story a little bit? Sure. So I think the Tiger Woods story, most people have probably absorbed at least the gist, even if they don't know the details. Basically, his, his father gave him a putter when he was seven months old. He was he was physically precocious, and he dragged it around everywhere in a circular baby walker, um, started imitating a swing at at 10 months. Not that his father was telling him to, he just saw it and started imitating. By two years old, he's on national TV showing off his swing in front of Bob Hope. You know, fast by three, his father started to media train him. Fast forward to 21, he's the best golfer in the world. Very focused on golf. Large amounts of so-called deliberate practice where it's like technical training. Roger Federer, on the other hand, obviously, um, you know, even even more more dominant, I'd say more clear goal for being the, the greatest man ever in, in his sport. But we don't really know, people don't really know his development story, which is that he played kind of a dozen different sports from skiing and skateboarding, rugby, badminton, basketball, soccer, all sorts of things. Delayed, specialized. His mother was a tennis coach, refused to coach him because he wouldn't return balls normally. When his coaches tried to kick him up a level, he declined because he just wanted to talk about pro wrestling with his friends. <laughs> um, actually, when he first got good enough to warrant a, an interview from the local paper and they asked what would he buy if he ever became a pro with his first check, he said a Mercedes, and his mother was appalled and asked if she could hear the interview recording. And she did, and, and Roger had actually said mere CDs in Swiss German, which just means he wanted more CDs, not a Mercedes. So she was okay with that. <laughs> um, he kept playing badminton, basketball, soccer years after his peers were focusing only on tennis. And obviously he turned out okay. So my question was, which one of these is the norm? Because, you know, if you look at the science, really, instead of just individual stories, which is the norm, and it turned out it is the Roger pattern that all around the world where – where uh, sports scientists track the development of athletes. They have a so-called sampling period where they gain these broad general skills that scaffold later learning. They learn about their interests, they learn about their abilities, and they systematically delay specializing until later than peers who plateau at lower levels. And it's 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 noteworthy because of the perspective of what we see in many cases here in the United States right now, where you do see this specialization uh, in a variety of different areas. Sports, obviously, is one area where you see more and more kids at a younger age only playing one sport year round in comparison to playing the sport of the season. And some people are even doing that when you're thinking about something like chess. You know, you have uh, kids playing chess at a very young age and, and playing it year-round and not having as much time to play out on the playground. 
That's true. And I should say, though, chess is actually a domain in the book where uh, I know that early specialization actually does work. So I'm, I'm not um, sort of dogmatic about this issue. I went into it and I right. wanted to say, well, when, what domains should you be Rogers and when should you be Tigers? And right. we certainly need specialists in some domains. And chess is one and, and possibly golf where specialization does work because they're what the psychologist Robin Hogarth calls kind learning environments where all information is available. People wait for each other to take turns. Next steps are clear. Uh, it's based on pattern repetition. So chess is highly based on pattern repetition, which is why computers are so good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you're in these kind learning environments and feedback is immediate and always fully accurate, and if you're in one of those kinds of environments, specialization actually does work quite well. The problem is the more that kind of expertise is based on either pattern recognition or repetitive motions, and the more more you're in one of those domains, the more likely it's getting automated. But as you mentioned a moment ago, if from the, the research that you've done, it seems like the the path to success is more associated with having a variety of experiences in your life. Yeah, in these more in these non chess like endeavors. So the more um, dynamic sports where you have to do on the fly problem solving, um, which are these are what Hogarth would call more wicked learning environments where patterns don't just repeat and you have to do things on the fly and at speed. And you have to solve problems that you haven't seen before. So you have to take skills and knowledge and apply them, do what's called what psychologists call transfer, apply them to situations you haven't seen before. And whether you are a kid learning math or sports or a scientist working on an unusual problem, mm-hmm. when you're in that, that world, what you need to do is transfer and, and transfer knowledge because you're trying to do something you haven't done before. And the way you set that up is with this, with this much broader-based learning. So the classic research finding goes like this. Breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer. So the more varied your training is, the better able you'll be to apply your skills flexibly to situations you haven't seen. And again, that doesn't matter if it's math or sports. You're trying to learn how to match a strategy to a type of problem instead of just learning how to do repetitive patterns, which is which is more like chess and golf. So, you, so in those areas, specialization is fine. You you have a chart in the in the in the book that lays out the differences between. Uh, what uh, you refer to as near elite and elite. And Mm -hmm. and it it is interesting how that lays out. And in the course of of many cases, there is a, if you are a quote unquote near elite athlete, that there is a dip at what around age 16, where it goes to the negative, where the elite athlete continues on for a while. Correct. Yeah, that's right. So the, the elite athletes, they have, they have, they do have exposure early. It's not like they're not exposed to their sport, but they spend less time in that so-called deliberate practice, that technical training. Right. Um, so they're spending less hours overall. They tend to dabble in more sports. doesn't matter if those sports are formal or not, but more physical activities. And a larger portion of what they're doing is unstructured play. So, like, you know, if you go to Brazil, the kids are all playing this game called futsal. It's like yep. one day on sand and one day on cobblestones. And so... I don't even think that multiple sports matters that much. I think it's just a proxy for the diversity of your, your movement skills and your problem solving and training. And so you see this pattern where the kids that jump out, you know, who are, it, it's basically the way to make the best 10-year-old athlete is not the same as the way to make the best 20-year-old athlete. If you want to make the best 10-year-old, you teach this, these highly technical skills early. And so that's the graph you're talking about where you see those kids jump out to a lead and then they get caught basically and surpassed by their peers who are doing more different stuff and unstructured play early on and then start having much faster learning rates as they get older and they fly past them. But how much benefit can you, can you see from the research that you've done? 
looking at the the formative years uh, of of an individual of of a young boy, young girl, and giving them a variety of experiences as they move along, when they get into their mid twenties, you know, post college education, get into their mid twenties, into their thirties, of how much they can benefit in those years from having those variety of experiences when they were younger. Yeah, so for so for the athletes, we kind of talked about that, but let let me give an example for people in that age range that you're talking about. So one um, economist actually wanted to find out like how important is specialization timing in education. So right. whether whether kids are are picking something pretty early, like when they're in their mid-teens, and and studying that, or if they get to do this greater variety of stuff first before they settle in. And so he looked at different countries that have similar education systems like like England and Scotland, for example, where they're really similar except for specialization timing, where in England the students have to pick, you know, 15, 16 in that area, what they're going to study because then they have to test into specific focused programs in college, whereas in Scotland they don't. They experiment the first two years, and they can even continue taking some other courses um, beyond that. So they, they get this, this sort of sampling period, kind of like the athletes. And his question was, who wins this trade-off, mm-hmm. the earlier or the late specializers? And the earlier specializers do jump out to an income lead, but they pick worse fits for themselves. They tend to pick things they already knew about, of course, because what else could they do? They, they pick something they already knew about when they were 16. The later specializers catch them and surpass them by six years out. And then the earlier specializers start quitting their careers in much higher numbers because they they failed to optimize their their match quality this term economists use for the degree of fit between an individual's abilities and their interests and the work they do um so the the late specializers get out behind but just like it's like the same exact pattern as with the athletes but then they then they fly past and and part of this also plays into something that we've talked about on this show and and you see it popping up in, in business culture is that more and more now you see companies wanting to assemble teams to be able to uh, uh to be able to complete tasks to 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 fill projects now Obviously, if you have somebody that has a, a a wide variety of experience that would be able to complete a project and be successful in, in much the same manner, yet we still see companies that, that are leaning now more to having the variety of people coming on board than having just one person with all these different experiences. That, that's a great point and, and, and gets right at like a study that I really found to be fascinating and specifically about the comic book industry. And that I specifically liked in the business context because the, the, the business professors that were doing the study picked the comic book industry for one reason because it didn't they, – they sort of write in their paper, well, a lot of research in the, in the business world suffers from survivor bias because we're only looking at the, you know, the companies that did really well. Right. So they wanted to pick an industry where they could follow the commercial value of comic books up and down for decades. Right. Um, and they were wondering, well, what, what will cause – uh, you know, a, a comic book creator, whether it's a team or individual, because they could track teams and individuals to produce more valuable comics on average and to be more likely to make a blockbuster breakthrough. And so they made they made typical predictions that came out of, you know, industrial production research, that it would be the resources of the publisher, that it would be the number of years in the field that the creator had um, and or the the number of repetitions they had done in the past. And those all turned out to be wrong. And the most important thing turned out to be the number of different genres that the creator had worked across of 22 different genres, you know, from from fantasy and crime, nonfiction, all these other things. 
And one of the really interesting findings was initially, say you had an individual who had worked in two genres. Right. You were better off replacing them with a team with three specialists who had only worked in one genre each. Right. But after four genres, the individual flies past and can no longer be recreated by the team of specialists. Hmm. And so, so what these what these researchers were saying was the the individual is clearly the best unit of integration as this knowledge becomes much wider. And so they titled the paper Superman or the Fantastic Four because they said if you can find a <laughs> Superman who's been across all these genres, get that. If not, assemble this diverse team. And there was exactly analogous findings in patent research starting in about the 90s with the explosion of the knowledge economy where the biggest impacts were coming from these people, who not the ones who had drilled down into the same technologies you know, as, as classified by the patent office, right. but people who had spread their work across a large number of different technological domains and were often merging them. And the really interesting thing there was that that was a trend that wasn't always the case. So prior to about 1990, the bigger contributions were coming from the specialists, and then it, it seems to have changed kind of as the knowledge economy exploded. So then have has and I'll keep it in the business perspective uh, for this has have we undervalued the generalist in in our society then? Oh, still there? Yeah, David. Oops, sorry, we, oh, wait, I th- we must have lost you for one second. I asked you then in the in the scope of our business culture, uh, mm-hmm. have we undervalued the generalist? Yeah, I, I think so. And I, again, I don't, by any stretch of the imagination, and I say this a number of times in the book, don't don't mean that. Don't think that means we don't need specialists. But as Freeman Dyson, you know, the I like how he phrased it, the eminent physicist and mathematician. He said we need both frogs and birds. The frogs are are down in the mud, looking at the granular details of everything. Yeah. And the birds are up above, and they don't see those details, but they can see multiple frogs, and they can integrate work. And what he said is our problem is that we're telling everybody to be frogs, and we're telling nobody to be birds. And that makes us inflexible, and all of our information is coming out of context. And and so I think I think we need both, but we're only telling everyone to be one. And I think that's having some some perverse effects, you know, in some of the areas I wrote about. One, one of the ways I got interested in this when I was doing investigative reporting at ProPublica was seeing some of the perverse effects of specialization in medicine, um, you know, that I think were well-intended, but just having uh, effects that, that we don't want because nobody's kind of integrating information and looking at it in context. So then what do you think that that means for our culture and our society today, and especially uh, in this in this digital age where we have so much data coming at us, flying at us uh, seemingly every minute? Well, I think for one, we have to be careful about this. So I read this really interesting research that I that I mentioned toward the end of range about attempts to do a science of science to basically predict where breakthroughs will come from career patterns, these things. And it turns out that it's basically you can't do it that you know it research study of 10,000 researcher careers found that someone's most impactful paper was as likely to be their first as their last as their 10th and it's and so the attempts to do it can cause what these researchers call this dangerous purifying selection where you get in a feedback loop where you're selecting for the same kind of stuff right mm-hmm. so these these sorts of ai where we're using big data they are again they're built for chess they're built to get what you got in the past. So if the patterns repeat, that's okay. But for things like innovation, by very definition, the patterns do not repeat. Right. And so in, in range, I end one of the chapters with the work of Abby Griffin, who studies these so-called serial innovators. 
And her work's really interesting because she goes through, you know, her studies of what are these traits and experiences of these people who make creative contributions over and over and over again to their companies. Yeah. And then she sort of steps out of the the more staid academic language at the end and says, by the way, dear HR professionals, you're defining your jobs way too narrowly, and you're therefore accidentally selecting out a lot of these people because they have zigzagged uh, through their careers, they have outside-of-domain interests, they appear to flit among ideas, they need to talk to people outside of their domain, they use analogies from other domains. And she was saying that when we try to make, you know, get the square peg for the the square hole kind of thing, you're, yeah. you're accidentally writing your your job descriptions too narrowly. And so I think that would even be exacerbated. I, I was just at a conference where uh, the head of a company that does you know machine learning to select employees was there. And, and I think that's a potentially dangerous idea if you're in a realm where you're looking for people to be creative and flexible and create new knowledge. One of the things you, you bring up, uh, you talk about grit. Uh, and and uh, specifically, we've uh, one of our colleagues here at uh, the University of Pennsylvania and, and the Wharton School, Angela Duckworth. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on the concept of grit? Yeah, and and by the way, I think any of the critique basically to, to her and her colleagues' credit came straight out of their papers. Yeah. I think they just – they were – it was great. Like they're so honest in their papers. I think a lot of it just gets lost in translation um, sometimes. Yeah. Um, but grit is – I think it's a really interesting concept, of course, the grit survey is – scores gives half its points for perseverance, essentially resilience, and the other half for consistency of interest. And I think one of the things that that Professor Duckworth and her colleagues wrote in their studies was that because the subjects they're studying, like people who are trying to get through orientation at West Point or, or do the finals of the National Spelling Bee, because those people have been um, highly pre-selected for a specific goal, and for other specific traits that you can't really extrapolate the findings outside of those people. And I think that's very astute because, you know, life isn't a six-week orientation or the finals of the National Spelling Bee. And right. I think what a lot of other research shows is that finding the right goal and, and finding your match quality in the first place is incredibly important. So you, you actually should be kind of changing your interests and, and sort of experimenting to try to maximize your match quality. So you don't want to just blindly say, well, if I don't stick with something, I don't have as much grit. And, and yeah. honestly, I was delighted because the day before my book came out last week, Angela's most recent post or newsletter was titled Summer is for Sampling. And it was about yeah. making sure you have a sampling period yeah. over the summer and you shouldn't like engage your, and she says, this is what I did in my career. And so, you know, you don't want to do grit just for the sake of grit before you've identified a good match and a goal. And I was really happy to see her write that. But are, are we seeing more of a sampling period in general now? And I, I, I think about how we see, you know, people may work for a bank or, a, you know, a grocery store or wherever it is. But but we have more and more instances of people that either have a second job or they are obviously giving of their time volunteering. So to a degree, I, I feel like that's almost a, a version of sampling as well. I, I agree with you. And I think that's happening. And even so Bureau of Labor Statistics data shows that, you know, even though we equate this kind of thing with millennials, I think a lot of times in the news, the Bureau of Labor Statistics data shows this actually is just a continuation of a trend that started with the late, like the very last baby boomers, right? Um, where they averaged about 12 jobs um, between ages of 18 and 48, and now it's just it's just going up. And I completely agree with you. And some other trends that have taken hold, like previously, people who became CEOs, you know, in in 
in sort of the, the so-called company man era, what the what keeps coming up in the papers where you, in your sort of upper out would stay in a certain industry or even at a certain company and just move up all the way. Whereas like when LinkedIn just did research on a half million members, one of the best predictors of who would become an executive was the number of different job functions that you had worked across um, within an industry. Each, each additional job function saved about three years of experience. And so I think we're seeing um, you know, this much, much higher degree of moving around and lateral movement and trying things, partly by necessity and also just because the more of a knowledge and creativity economy we're in, the more you can transfer skills. Um, across jobs, whereas when we were in a more kind of industrial economy and you were facing repetitive challenges, it didn't really make much sense to move around that way. So, so I agree. I think it's, I think it's happening. I, I think people should be, you know, encouraged to do it, not discouraged from doing it. But I think some of it is happening very naturally. But it, it feels like there are times where you would like to see it occur more within the structure of a company. You know, somebody works no doubt. in the sales department of, of a company, but you, you would also like to build upon their experience that maybe they worked at a PR firm before. And and, and I'm wondering if, if you think that companies are, are truly willing to accept that kind of a mindset right now, or are we going to stay to a degree, many of them, not all, many companies, stay in kind of this pigeonhole mentality? I think it's I think it's very rare to see that. I do think some companies have it, but I think the pigeonhole mentality is, you know, it's like an oil tanker. You got to start steering it from forty miles out to shore right. to get it to go to the right place. Right. So I think it's a little bit of generational change. But just you know, just two weeks ago, I was at um, I went on a podcast with Bill Simmons at the at the Ringer, which is probably yeah. I think it's the most listened to podcast in, sports podcast in yeah. in the world. And one of the things I noticed there was, you know, he, he was at, obviously he was successful on his own and then got picked up by ESPN and then had a failure of a project at HBO and then started The Ringer. And one of the things I noticed there was some of my former colleagues from Sports Illustrated worked there and they were hired to do like, you know, editing and fact checking stuff. Yeah. And now some of them, like Mallory Rubin, for example, was hired just to edit online stories. And now she's like a famous podcast host because in there they'll tell people like, hey, do you want to try coming on a podcast? And they'll give them a shot. And some of these people have now become famous who yeah. were hired to do one job, but they give them a little bit of a shot. And so I think and, – and by the way, I don't think I've ever been in a happier workplace in my entire life. And I think part of that is because they're letting people try stuff. The director of content now was hired as this you know, totally different job. And so I think, um, you know, I, I think some people are sort of recognizing that, and that's kind of the part of the book where I write about the Army's use of talent-based branching, where instead of – for, for officer retention, instead of doing the upper out thing, they now will give these high potential officers, they'll like assign them a coach and say, here's a bunch of different career tracks. Yeah. Try a couple different ones. The coach will help you reflect on, you know, how well they fit you as you try different ones. And they're having much better success with that retention. So I think those are just sort of separate, uh, you know, facets of the same idea. But, I, but I, I'm hopeful that if the Army can come around on that, then, yeah. then maybe other places can too. But the retention part of it is a vital issue in our business culture today. And, and it's one of the reasons why you see some of the change going on in terms of the, the physical structure of companies and, and the look of, of, of the office as well, because HR departments realize how much money they have to spend when they lose an employee. They don't want to lose that person. They would much rather be able to, to try and, and make them happy and try and see if they can incorporate them in, in more areas. Maybe it's a, a shift to a different side of the company. Totally. And I mean, I think that I think everything we know about everything, it says, you know, 
keep your current employees, keep your current customers, et cetera, rather than having to develop new stuff, right? And so, right. so I think there's recognition of that. And it kind of reminds me of this famous essay called The Mythical Man Month by Fred Brooks, who went on to found the computer science department at the University of North Carolina, where basically the, the theme of the essay is what's called Brooks' Law, which is that when you have a software project that's late, adding more manpower to it will make it more late. Right. And, and the reason that happens is because managers always underestimate how difficult it is to assimilate new people onto that team, right. and they'd be much better off with the people on the team learning some new skills instead. And so, but they continue to make the same mistake over and over and over and over and over. And um, so, yeah, I think it. I think it'd be good if there's some recognition of that 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 you're way better off developing and diversifying the people you have, like to to make those Superman, you know, instead of having the Fantastic Four, which probably becomes like the Fantastic, you know, 100 as the job gets more complex. One of the other other uh, topics that you uh, that you talk about in the book is the 10,000 hour rule. Yeah. Uh, and, and give us your 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 sense uh, of its significance or, or lack thereof. Well, I think I think culturally it's extraordinarily significant, and and it's such a moving target at this point because of how many different people have written about it. That yeah, you know, it, what you think it means probably depends on where you you read about it. Yeah, um, and so you know. For some people, it, it's this idea that there's no such thing as as talent and and only ten thousand hours of practice. Um, you know, is, is is what talent is? It's just it's masquerading as talent, but actually, it's just practice. And practice is incredibly important. There's actually that's completely uncontroversial among people who study this. Um, but this idea that there's no such thing as talent is uh, that was kind of the topic of my first book. And when Malcolm Gladwell and I were invited to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference in March of this year. And I sort of asked him how he felt, given all our conversations and writing about it. And he says, and this is on YouTube, minute 54, uh, he says he changed his mind and that he conflated two ideas, that a lot of practice is important with the idea that in order to be really good at X, you should only do X starting from as young as possible. And, and that he's been convinced that he conflated those and that, that they're not the same. And I think that's really astute. I think he's right. And I think the study that spawned the 10,000 hours in the first place, even though that wasn't that language was not used in the paper, yeah. um, was of 30 violinists who were already highly, so highly pre-screened, they were already in a world-famous music academy, and the top 10 had practiced on average 10,000 hours of deliberate practice by age 20, but there was no measure of variance reported in the paper, and I organized a panel at the American College of Sports Medicine that included Anders Ericsson, the author of that paper, yeah. and he was asked about the variance there, and he said he wasn't sure, and then when he was pressed on it, he said it was definitely more than 500 hours. So we actually don't even really know how far under and over 10,000 hours uh, was and what the real average was, and that's, that's the case in every study. So in studies of developing chess skill, the, the range of hours it takes to get to international master status ranges from some people who have made it in 3,000 hours to other people who are still being tracked at 25,000 hours, and they still haven't made it. And if you average it at the moment, you get 11,053 hours rules, but it tells you nothing about the real diversity of human skill acquisition. So actually knowing things about your strength and where you fit is really important. How does how do these concepts and you touched on it briefly earlier on, but how do these concepts really play into into uh, the, the the current education system that we have? And not necessarily thinking about the college side of it, but but the K through 12. Yeah, it's sort of I mean, the, the 10,000 hour side again, like practice is incredibly important, but that that's totally 
that's totally uncontroversial. Right. And the question is, what are the what are the best ways to develop someone, and what's the best kind of practice? And I think one of the one of the problems we've had, and and this this doesn't come out of the ten thousand hours sort of set shouldn't necessarily be bl- shouldn't be blamed for this aspect, but but I think it's it's led to this um, you know incredible focus on sort of tracking and measuring things, and and so now in K twelve. You know, obviously, we, we use tests for evaluation. The problem is, and this, this is the chapter, actually, I, w- I was at Penn doing some of the reporting in, in, with some of the cognitive psychologists for chapter four, uh, learning fast and slow. And what I was learning is that, you know, cognitive psychology has these incredibly well-supported methods for learning. The problem with them is that they slow down initial progress. So right. the learner doesn't appear to be making as quick of progress, and they're more frustrated, and they will rate their teachers worse because they're more frustrated. But that's actually the way you want to learn in order to to build up later knowledge. So, for example, one study that just came out that I didn't have time to get into the the concept I got into the book, but the study just came out like a week ago, yeah. um, looks at this concept called interleaving, where basically you have kids learning math. These were in seventh grade classrooms. Kids learning math, some of them get certain types of problems where they practice problem type A, AAA, then type B, 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 C, and so on. The other type gets all problem types mixed up, like shuffled up, which is called interleaved. And those kids who get it all mixed up are – they get frustrated. They, they rate their learning as less. They rate their teachers lower. Their parents rate them as more frustrated, all these things. And then come test time where both groups are seeing problems they haven't seen before, the group with the interleaving blows the other group away because group one has been learning how to execute procedures and group two has been learning how to match strategies to types of problems. And that's what you want. And the effect size in this study, this, the, the kids were randomized to which kind of study they were going to have. And the effect size was on the order of taking a kid from the 50th percentile and moving him to the 80th percentile. Right. Right. With, with just with changing the, the method of study, the problem is it's so deeply counterintuitive because the kids that are doing the AAA, BBB make better progress before your eyes. So yeah. one of the deeply counterintuitive for me themes of range was this idea that you can do things that cause immediate progress that are undermining your long-term progress. And that's a, hard thing to get your head around. So I think those cognitive psychologists, we really have to build a bridge between them and, and teachers to, to try to get some understanding there. What, what would you like, for people that, that read the book, what would you like them to take most from it? That, that And maybe it's even a greater scale of how these ideas potentially can impact our society today. Yeah, I mean, I think one, that idea that I just mentioned, that the things that cause the most rapid progress often systematically undermine long-term development, but also that I think we should, you know, I hope I'm giving some, or not, I'm just aggregating the research, of course, but that, that researchers are giving us some good ammo to fight against the sunk cost fallacy in our professional lives, for one, where we get information, we get signal, like our insight into ourselves, like you can do all the strength finders, quizzes you want, but your insight into yourself is constrained by your roster of previous experiences. And it turns out that we learn stuff about ourselves, our interests, and our strengths as we try things, and so that we should have a period of zigzagging and experimentation like those athletes, like those comic book creators, like those technology inventors. Right. And we shouldn't just see it as the sunk cost where you say, well, I've started down this path, and so now I don't want to get off. Because the stuff you learn in that one path, again, remember the LinkedIn research, biggest number of job functions are the people who are most likely to go be executives. That's not lost time. You haven't wasted it. It doesn't mean that transitioning is easy. But you can take what you learned in one domain and bring it to the other. Like when I was in grad school trained to be a scientist, I was a completely ordinary scientist. 
And then I took that in knowledge, and when I was at Sports Illustrated, suddenly it's extraordinary and my total advantage. And I think we should think about it that way, and, and HR people should as well, mm-hmm. to, to cultivating this, this diversity and not not defining their jobs too narrowly where they're just getting like whatever the LinkedIn like perfect algorithm is sending right in their direction yeah. because you're going to screen out some of the most interesting employees. David, great to have you on the show. Thank you for your uh, insight and good luck with the book. Uh, my pleasure. Great question. Thanks for having me. Thank you. David Epstein. Uh, the book is Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. book is available in bookstores and online for your purchase right now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.